Welcome to the fifth episode of the Green Finance Podcast. This is Yulia Chutina, senior reporter at Tearsheet. Our Banking on the Planet conference is right around the corner. Tuesday, July 26th, starting at 9.45 Eastern Time. So if you haven't registered yet, please do so on our website. It's totally free and we have some great speakers lined up. We'll be talking about everything green finance and the intersection of climate risks, sustainability, ESG investments, and banking, bringing together leaders from the banks set out to make a difference, and the fintechs and technology providers bringing us closer to a net zero future. One of the companies that we'll be talking at the conference is Patch, an API-based solution enabling companies to embed carbon footprint estimation and removal directly into their digital products and experiences. Today, I'm talking to its CEO, Brennan Spellacy, to tell us how Patch works, as well as his insights on the whole carbon offsetting market, which has grown tremendously over the past few years, attracting a lot of interest. While it's not a central solution to the wider problem of climate change, it's an important piece of the puzzle. So tune in to find out how it all works. Hi, Brennan. Thank you for joining us on the Green Finance Podcast. Tell us about Patch and how it's able to embed carbon footprint estimation and removal directly into digital products. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Julia. Um, so at the highest level, Patch is what we'll call an API-first marketplace for carbon removal. So for those who don't know, an API is how computers talk to each other. So whenever you use a software application, whether it's on your mobile device or, or on a laptop, there's usually a series of APIs behind the scenes enabling that program to talk to other programs. What we do at Patch is we work with a really large variety of what are called carbon removal developers. These are organizations that sequester carbon dioxide. That's their core business. And we digitize their ability to sell. So we load their capacity to sequester carbon dioxide into the Patch platform. And then we expose that sequestration capacity to end buyers, either through our dashboard products, where corporates might use that to manage their carbon footprint. There's an actual visual interface or a web application you can interact with. And there are also a series of APIs that allow you to remove carbon dioxide through a few lines of code. And so the way we actually embed that within applications is we typically give this code to fintech companies, to e-commerce platforms, and they'll actually embed these few lines of code that Patch produces into their application to surface that feedback typically to their end users. A really concrete example of this is the buy now, pay later provider Afterpay where they've actually enabled the ability for consumers to compensate their carbon footprint from within the Afterpay application. And that's all powered by Patch's APIs. That's awesome. So then how soon should we expect our banking apps to tell us the carbon footprint of our financial actions? So it's already it's already beginning to happen. So Patch already partners with a, a sub-brand of, of RBC, which is one of the largest banks in Canada. Um, and we have a few others coming up in the next one to two quarters that are going to be going live. And so it's already actively happening. Something that's important to call out in this particular example with, with banking is Patch typically partners with a third party uh, to estimate the transaction footprint. And what I mean by that is we think a lot about um, incentives at Patch, right? So if Patch were 100, 1,000 times bigger, it's a lot harder to make sure the incentive structure is set up such that everyone is operating ethically. And so one thing that's really important for us is to do is never do the footprinting ourselves, but partner with the third party, like Doconomy or Kogo. And the reason we do that is because the footprint is essentially the diagnosis 
of what you have to do versus the carbon compensation or carbon removal is, is the medicine. And so you wouldn't want your doctor both making money off of all the medicine they prescribe you because they would be incentivized to prescribe you more medicine. And that's very, very similar situation with patch. But we want to make sure the people actually footprinting, the people compensating are always separate entities. So at scale, there's never any sort of uh, fishy conflict of interest. That's a really interesting point you make. And we're going to get into the ethical part of this whole thing a little bit later because I do have a lot of questions on that. But now kind of reverting back to the banking space, you mentioned Patch works with crypto companies, traditional banks, neobanks, and essentially giving them a tool set to build some sort of climate action into their product. What's the demand that you're seeing in the sector for a product like yours? Like, what's the interest, especially from the U.S.? So the demand is, is massive. So, I mean, if you look at the top, maybe 10 retail banks, so those banks actually offering some sort of either credit or debit card product to um to their end user, we're probably in active conversations with about half, if not two thirds of them. Um, so there's a huge amount of interest. Now, you know, these large banks obviously operate within a fairly uh, strict regulatory framework and some of their technical abilities are maybe not as, as sophisticated as a newer uh, challenger bank might be. And so the, the rate to which they can move uh, is a little bit different. And so the time where these products actually go live is gonna vary over the next two to three years but the actual interest and intent is incredibly high. And it's being primarily driven by the fact that these folks, being the banks, are trying to acquire net new users, right? The, the bank thing is, very, is a very sticky product. And so you typically get folks in on a checking account or a savings account, might sell them a credit card. And then if you're really like a, if you're a truly large bank, you might then start selling them loan products and mortgage products, which is where a lot of these banks make the bulk of their money off of an individual, um, less so the, the debit and savings accounts. Um, and so because of that, getting a lot of top of funnel for these new customers is, is really critical for them. And so they view this as a way, uh, this being sustainability, folding this into their product as a way to attract net new young people to their top of funnel, to their customer acquisition. So this is a very important customer acquisition channel for them in order to make sure they stay competitive over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Yes, consumers are definitely pushing the needle for something like this, which is putting sustainability on the radar for banks and fintechs. But besides the sort of pressure coming from the end consumer, are there other factors that are playing in the background? Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of one kind of top line driver. Um, and there's also the piece of this is a heavily regulated industry and there's beginning to be a lot more regulatory pressure on sustainability more broadly, not just banks, but on, on kind of most most industries. And as a result, this is something these banks are beginning to think about from a risk perspective. And so how do you make sure you stay out of the crosshairs from a regular regulator's perspective? One of the ways to do that is to operate as if you're already being regulated, to make sure you're already acting like a good actor or a good faith actor within the ecosystem. And so there is like this interesting combination of top line driving opportunity with new customers, as well as regulatory threats that are accelerating the investment these banks are making within sustainable products. Definitely. Those are some really good points. You mentioned that Patch partners with companies like Dachonomy and Kogo to help you understand the carbon footprint. And then the offsetting part comes separately to avoid any conflict of interest. This approach, I assume, involves building a robust network of partners, especially on the offsetting side. There's nature-based projects, carbon removal technologies, forestry, and so on. So how complicated was it to build this network and find suitable partners? 
just like we have a, an outbound sales team on the buy side of our marketplace, we have a sales team on the what we call the supply side of our marketplace, which is the part of the product you're describing right now. And so for us, it honestly actually hasn't been that difficult. You know, so when we come to suppliers and say, hey, what we think what you're doing is really incredible. We want to help give you software to help you scale your business and, and commercialize your business further. It's actually not that hard of a sell, candidly. Um, and what's actually the more difficult piece is finding what are the truly unique elements within the supply side product to enable it so you can build a software system that powers so many different technology types and so many different types of businesses um, without being too, I guess, tightly coupled to one technology type. This is kind of truly the difficult piece, which is what is the right abstraction? What's the right software experience for these end users who are all very different in some ways and all very similar in other ways that they're all sequestering carbon dioxide in one way or another. And so that's primarily been where the bulk of the effort has been spent on the supply side of the business, where it's very product-led versus uh, versus sales-led. I want to talk a little bit about the carbon offsetting space. I hope you can help me understand what's going on there because one can't ignore the flurry of greenwashing accusations regarding companies using carbon credits from fossil fuel projects Bloomberg ran this big story on Lime Timber, a company compensated to safeguard the forest and legally prohibited from cutting any trees, which turned into one of the planet's biggest sellers of carbon offsets, essentially earning millions by taking advantage of this market. And those carbon credits were technically made up in a way. So, and it seems like this is not an isolated incident. So what's going on in the carbon credit market and how do you choose the projects to partner with throughout this whole debacle? Yeah. Absolutely. It's a great question. So I think zooming out, whenever you have a huge amount of capital go to any new market, there's always going to be bad actors. You know, this is a fintech podcast. Um, you know, banking has, has not been a free of, of scandal, whether it's in the great financial crisis or, or any, any other ecosystem. And typically the way to get around that is at some point, this um, although there is like lots of inherent value being created at some point, rules of the road are going to have to be written, right? And we're kind of just beginning to see that now where there's so much attention on voluntary markets that regulators are beginning to look at this space. And so we're actually one of the few um, probably technology businesses that advocates for our ecosystem to get regulated more versus less. A lot of folks are pro deregulation and there are certain types of regulation I think are very, very important um, within carbon markets, specifically as it pertains to the, quote, underlying quality of the of the, of the credit. And the thing you're describing um, with the uh, prevented deforestation or alleged prevented deforestation is really an additionality question, which is when you compare before and after the financial incentive of a carbon credit being provided, would, does something actually change it, right? And the counterfactual situation without the carbon credit, if nothing would have actually happened, then it's not a, it does not pass that additionality test. That is without without regulation in place. That is actually very difficult to to standardize because there's so much room for interpretation. So because of that, we're going to actually see to, need to see a lot more regulation coming in, into the ecosystem. In my opinion. So then, what sort of rules or regulations do you think the market needs to weed out the bad actors? So I think there needs to just be more general general oversight. So it's actually not necessarily related to the rules, but actually the uh, crediting process itself, right? Because a lot of these verification standards, um, like Avera or an ACR, 
have the concept of additionality tests. The problem is these are highly under-resourced organizations. And so when it comes to oversight and auditing, they don't have the proper capacity right now in order to enforce the rules they've already put down. So I think that's actually the biggest oversight. So that's how you end up in these situations where, you know, they both want the adoption of their verification standard to, to expand because that validates their kind of core business. But at the same time, they need to be enforcing the quality and kind of the underlying um, efficacy of their standard. And sometimes these two dynamics are at odds with one another. And when you layer that on top of the fact that they're under-resourced organizations, it's just not a recipe for success. Like we're not setting up these verification standards to be successful right now. And so that regulation could come in the form of public resourcing for these organizations. It could come in the form of uh, the federal government standing up their own um, or a series of federal governments standing up their own series of, of verification standards. That's actually, that's actually what Canada is doing. They have a federal carbon credit program in addition to uh, the voluntary carbon credit program that operates within within Canada. And so there are a couple of different options. Um, I think a lot, all of which I think are honestly probably worth experimenting with. But what we know is the kind of system we have today is not set for 100x growth. And so we need to figure out what are those two or three modifications we have to make in order to set the entire market up for success. Awesome. It's really crazy how this whole space took off, really, with ESG, the carbon offsetting space, and just climate tech or climate fintech in general. It's really been awesome to see. And this also means there's this new relationship forming between these new companies and the incumbent industry watching an age-old system that's trying to adapt to a new situation. So what do you see next in this new relationship between the finance industry and the climate sector? Absolutely. I think the world we're in right now, having sustainability built into your product is considered a nice to have or maybe a, a bonus differentiator. The world we're moving towards, though, is that this is going to become table stakes. And I think actually in a very surprising short amount of time, just based on the conversations just Patch is having with the amount of market cap of banks represented in the conversations Patch is having, um, like there's a world where in the next five years, probably like 80 or 90% of the top 10 banks in the world are going to have some sort of product that offers some, some consumer facing product that has some sort of sustainability offering folded within it. And so we're going to very actually quickly flip from having it viewed as a nice to have to a must have very, very quickly. Um, and so as far as, you know, how are these incumbents going to adapt? It's going to be really honestly leading on partners like a patch in order to fulfill that need. Um, when you have a transformation happen that quickly, it's very hard to build a type of capacity or expertise internally in that short amount of time. And so typically folks are going to want to buy or partner here versus build themselves. Definitely. But, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. And what I hear is that banks are struggling a lot with the culture component, really having folks understand climate risks and what adaptability means in practical terms. It's hard because banks never done anything like this before. And when it comes to implementing Patch's API, for example, it's about embedding something into a very consumer facing process. So how is that collaboration going? Yeah, totally. The Candidly, there's a lot of education taking place right now. There are a lot of there's a lot of intent and desire and even budget being allocated, but a lot of folks aren't actually sure where to start. And the reason for that is primarily because there's not a lot of precedent today, right? We're in this interesting situation where Patch is operating in a category creation business, not a category disruption business. And so when you're creating a category, 
you have to create all the educational materials and best practices yourself to kind of show what could success look like, what will success look like in the future. And so the approach we've taken is very education forward to help people understand what's the difference between like a net zero claim and a carbon neutral claim. What's the difference between um, the concept of avoiding emissions versus removing emissions? What's the difference between all these different technology types you described earlier? There's a huge amount of education required um, in order to just begin to have a constructive conversation afterwards about, okay, how are we going to fold this into our product or our general strategy as it pertains to, in this case, banks? So banks aren't alone in this. Uh, e-commerce platforms, crypto companies we work with are all kind of facing the same same series of problems. Uh, so we're well equipped to help folks understand you know, the, the foundation elements. The thing that is unique across them is what is an ideal consumer partner experience look like within their particular product and that tends to be vertical specific so what works for a buy now pay later provider may not work for a traditional retail bank right that makes sense so there's a lot of adaptation there and tailor-made apis and products which i suppose comes with the job of software as a service and having clients from a wide range of industries and given that you collaborate with so many companies and investors, I also want to get your opinion on the current market downturn. How do you think this is going to affect the climate tech sector and the investment going in this area? So investment in general, I think, is is, is down across the board, right? Whether that's in, in public or private markets. Now, I'm of the opinion that climate tech specifically is going to be hit less hard than other other verticals. And that's primarily because, again, there's so much energy related internally related to these initiatives. And now that sustainability is now no longer being viewed as a nice to have, but either a compliance item or a revenue driver, those are the types of things that don't get cut during during downturns. So although investment dollars from a either venture, growth equity, institutional investor perspective might might decrease internal investment within actual organizations, we haven't actually seen any market softness at all, um, with the exception of some centralized crypto companies uh, who are becoming increasingly illiquid. Uh, but that's that's kind of a more, more anomalous. The banks aren't really suffering from that. And so for us, um, you know, we're continuing to double down on e-commerce, banking, uh, private equity is actually a huge vertical for us. Companies like EQT are big customers of ours. Um, because there's still a huge amount of energy here, and and the long and although it although there was a huge amount of pain being felt in the short term, at the end of the day, this is still going to be a 24, 36 month cycle, uh, and a lot of people are still rowing towards their 20, 30 goals, uh, which is you know two cycles from now. So there, because of the time scales we operate on, I, I'm I'm fairly optimistic that we're not going to see material. Um, change in our trajectory in the short term we might end up in some sort of local or local minimum or maximum but over the next four or five six years uh very very bullish yeah i'm with you on that one i'm also quite optimistic about the sector but i'm also a bit biased because i'm kind of rooting for the underdog um considering this whole context which pockets of the market are you keeping an eye on what are some of the technologies or innovations in the industry that you're hoping to see in the future so in the, in the absence of, of um, additional regulation, the thing that I'm really excited about is the additional growth of what I'll call credit rating providers or carbon credit rating providers that are emerging. So there are companies like B0 
that are operating almost like a Moody's would for securities, um, but for underlying carbon and commodities markets. The reason that that's exciting is because it, again, gives us more information to help end buyers understand the underlying quality um, and attributes of the carbon that they're buying on the platform. Because that goes back to that second incentive element. So we mentioned incentives when it came to carbon accounting and measurement, where basically whoever's doing your carbon accounting should never be monetizing the compensation and vice versa. The other incentive structure we think a lot about is the idea of who determines what quality is and the underlying attributes. So although Patch will always guarantee the data we present in the Patch platform, we'll never produce that quality data ourselves. We'll again, always partner with the third party. And the reason for that is, again, we monetize off of throughput. And so theoretically at scale, we would be incentivized to say, everything is AAA because that would guarantee the most throughput on the platform. Um, again, that's obviously not ethical, but obviously won't work at scale. And so as a result, we have to structurally push that function outside of the patch business and then put and partner in that particular case. And so there are a few companies like B0 and Silvera that are beginning to crop up and we intend to partner with most of them to have truly help buyers understand what am I actually getting and how can I be the most informed buyer possible? That's really awesome and a very important point you make. Um, I also think whoever is going to provide more transparency and will help investors understand and make sustainable investments is going to attract tremendous interest over the next few years, as well as companies that can help banks or companies report on all these things. Um, in any case, we're just at the beginning of stages of it, so it's just really exciting to see the market evolve. We're at the end of our time here, so I want to thank you so much, Brennan, for joining me today, and I'm looking forward to the conference next week. Appreciate it, Yulia. Thank you so much for having me. To read the transcript of our conversation, head over to Tearsheet.co. If you want to know more about the intersection of finance and sustainability, you can subscribe to our free green finance newsletter in your inbox every other week to get more insights and research into this topic. That's also where I'll be featuring every new Green Finance podcast episode, so sign up to stay up to date with all of our content. Thank you for listening, and make sure you subscribe to the Green Finance podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be out with a new episode every two weeks, so I'll catch you at the next one.